Hi, everyone. Welcome into the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. I have the fortune to be joined by my good friend, Lama Pema Drakpa, again. I welcome Lama Pema Drakpa. Hey, Scott. It's good to be with you again. Thanks. Thanks for sharing more time with me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for coming back for part two. Um, so uh, Lama Drakpa and I decided we want to do a part two because there's just so much to discuss last time. And uh, we also just spent uh, 10 days at, at a wonderful uh, transmission, a Buddhist transmission, Vajrayana transmission event in Mexico. And so a lot came up during that. So we thought, let's just continue the, let's continue the convo. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah amazing. Special times, really, really special times. Good to be with you. I mean, yeah. good to have just shared a lot of time with you and family and friends and your local area of the woods. So. Thanks. It's yeah. Things are things are turned on. It's good. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to connect. Um, so, Lama Pema Drakpa, uh, just to introduce him again, if if you for some of you who didn't hear part one, but you can go back and listen to that if you want. Uh, Lama Pema Drakpa has been a resident Dharma teacher at Pama Samye Ling uh, in upstate New York since two thousand four. Uh, this is the main monastery and center of the Padma Sambhava Buddhist uh, Center, founded by the Nyingma Dzogchen Masters, Venerable Kenshin Palden Sherab Rinpoche and Venerable Kempo Sewang Dongyal Rinpoche, uh, ordained as a Lama uh, by the Venerable Kempo Rinpoche in 2010. Drakpa graduated with honors in philosophy and, philosophy and religious studies from New York University in 2002, and, and is a senior editor of over 25 books on Buddhist philosophy and meditation. Uh, he also regularly travels to lead uh, Padma Sambhava Buddhist Center events on traditional contemporary Buddhist philosophy and meditation. Um, also, uh, as some of you know who who listened or watched listened to or watched part one, uh, Lama Drakpa is the author of a brand new book called "An Integral View of Tibetan Buddhism." Preserving Lineage Wisdom in the 21st Century. And that's more or less been the subject of our conversation. And we're going to continue that conversation based on uh, things that that are in your book, Drakpa, as well as, you know, some of our relationships to lineage, Tibetan Buddhism, our own practice. Um, I also had forgotten until you reminded me here in, in, in Mexico that um, uh, you were a monk also for three years. So, so you know, that that was kind of i know we had talked about that before but i had forgotten so you know not only are you a western lama but also you were a monastic for some time so yeah so yeah <laughs> yeah so anyways welcome back and um yeah I, I thought we could kick it off with with um just starting to go into lineage i think that was the end of our last conversation just really starting to talk about you know what why lineage? Maybe is is one question. What is lineage in in the Tibetan Buddhist Vajrayana lineages, and um, you know why is it important? Uh, what, what's it all about? So maybe we can just start with that, and then if you want to bring in some in, in, integral approaches, great. But it's kind of kicking that off. If you have any thoughts on that, yeah, wonderful. The I what. mean, <laughs> yeah, um, the that that book I just came out with. Originally, the title was going to be Preserving Lineage Wisdom in the 21st Century, yeah. an inter integral approach to Vajrayana Buddhism. So definitely at the core of my reflection um, with that is just the, the extraordinary specialness 
of Tibetan Buddhist Vajrayana lineage. Um, in, in so many ways, there's a little section on the book that tries to define what lineage is. It's about 10 pages long, and it's kind of a list of yeah. all these things that lineage really does. Um, I have that list, by the way, because you sent it to me. I, we, I could also read from that if you want. Yeah, you can peek into some of it if you want. I think maybe get into, like, maybe right off the bat, like, what's some heart essence, Fadriana lineage stuff, and then if we want to parse it apart, that'd be awesome. Um, sure. Yeah, so, in general, the Buddha is, the Buddha did say, we all, we have this totally uncontrived natural brilliance and goodness that is the true nature of our hearts and minds and of reality. And so, the Buddha just very clearly taught that, and it can be distilled into wisdom and compassion, or it can be talked about to some degree as non-duality of just this naturalness we have. Mm. But the the trick of that is it's so easy to say, and it's really difficult to just be natural, to just let ourselves flow in a natural way that aligns with the systems we're a part of. That, that honors and respects cause, condition, and effect, that like mutually boosts and cares for others and ourself in, a, in the short term and the long term, it's all really hard to do and very easy to say. Mm. And essentially, in a, in a really big frame way, lineage, Vajrayana lineage, is all the supportive structures that help us to just be natural. It's all the conducive conditions that help us actually be courageous and be ourselves and just let ourselves beautifully be natural, be what we are. And in that process of actually kind of loosening up, like our very small, kind of narrow, tight, um, mono storyline experience of who am I, and to actually like have some more bright freshness in the room of my sense of me and my sense of us and what I'm a part of with like to introduce some amazement. Um, lineage is, is when we actually do that deep unwinding, uncoiling, settling process that is practice in Tibetan Buddhism or in Buddhism, that that can be a very messy, surprising thing. And there can mm -hmm. be a lot of habitual patterns to resist that because I just, I want to be me and I'm not ready to be a fuller version of me because those growing pains are usually kind of a little painful and stretch, you know, stretchy. There's like carpet burn marks when the, <laughs> you know, reality kind of shows us a bigger view than what we're kind of used, used to. Um, and so lineage is anything that helps support that easing into a bigger, fuller sense of me and you and us and what it is we're a part of. So that's a very general kind of definition of lineage. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's great. And I think, you know, I, I think the interesting question there is, you know, we don't have to get into this right away, is like, what mm -hmm. is that bigger vision from a Buddhist perspective of what, what, what you know, quote unquote, ourself is? Um, and then I think that's interesting, you know, because we have this in in a, in a lot of postmodernism and modern culture of mm -hmm. like, um, I just want to be myself, man, you know, just just yeah. let me be me, you know, my truth. And yeah, it's, it's, it's my truth. Let me do it. And um, sure, go ahead. Like, you know, but, but the question is whether that's going to make one happy or not, whether that's going to fulfill one or not. That's really the question the Buddha asked. And um, and so I think this I think you're on, you know. What you said, I, I I totally resonate with, but I think that's an interesting question of like what that bigger me is, what that you know, w you know, maybe that 
to throw something out there. It's like, is the self, does the self get so big? It goes beyond self, you know, is there a kind of this way where it, it gets, how do you say it? The, the bigger me is, is beyond me in a way. <laughs> right. Cool. So let's open it up. I'm, I mean, yeah. you're, a, you're a deep dive Buddhist guy and I, I, I like the deep waters and the shallow waters and all the versions in between. Like I'm, I'm a total fan of Buddhist Shakyamuni and Guru Rinpoche and, um, so yeah, we'll go in there. So real quick, the four seals, they're yeah. said to be the, the four features of Buddhist teaching. Like any teaching, you know, is authentic according to the Buddha. If it follows these four seals, and in Pali, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, Nibbana. So impermanence, suffering, no self, Nirvana or Nibbana, cessation. So these are really big topics in Buddhism. Um, and without defining them, without total lot, a lot of thing, a lot of kind of nuance and granularity, right yet. A cool thing that's really magnificently, radically awesome is that Buddha Maitreya in the Uttara Tantra, defined the nature of reality as four other points. Mm. And those four other points are almost the mirror inverse of the four seals. Mm. So he, he called it not anicca, impermanence, he said, great permanence. No. Anatta, not no cell, or, or anicca, dukkha, not dukkha, suffering, but great bliss. Mm. Anicca anatta, not no self, but great self. This is Buddha Maitreya. And yeah. then four, not nibbana, but great purity. Mm. And he said, these are the four qualities that if you recognize unconditioned awareness, that is Buddha nature, these are the four qualities of reality that will actually be the definitive teachings of reality, the like way an enlightened being sees things. And whereas the four seals then become provisional or approximate or Cinderella's, Cinderella stories, like Zoksar Kenser and Bache would say, stories, ways to make um, the sheer power of reality more digestible to minds that aren't really ready to see that clearly, that much truth. And so it's beautiful because the Buddha on one said, on one level said, the conditioned awareness, conditioned mind, conditioned sense of me, this small me of one or two storylines that trace back to my history and my language and my gender and my traumas, that if you open that up and have a fuller version of that, actually more stories, more nuance, more texture, more ability, more time, more past lives, more potential, more talents, more connections, that it actually becomes not just impermanence but great permanence he said neither permanent beyond permanence and impermanence is great permanence <laughs> beyond self and no self is great self beyond suffering and bliss is great bliss beyond impurity and purity is great purity mm. and this great here is an important distinguishing word and usually it's, it's said maha shempo yeah. and that means it always points towards the open flexible nature of reality or the absolute nature which sometimes is called emptiness so what it's saying is that whenever you have experience and it's actually recognizing the empty open flexible quality of the experience then it's signified by great mm. and then for example great bliss or blissfulness it's a blissfulness or a sense of satisfaction or contentment that's not conditioned it's actually when you recognize emptiness the flexible free flow nature of cause, condition, and effect, 
it's naturally restful, self-satisfied, content. So great blissfulness in all cases at all times. Yeah. And so this is beautiful. I mean, that such a Buddha taught this on one level, the definitive truth was the four seals, but at a higher level, a more inclusive level, more closer to the nature, the Buddha nature of oneself and others, that same that same teaching becomes provisional or approximate or interpretable. And then the larger, more inclusive, more direct, more natural, more comprehensive teaching becomes definitive. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, super beautiful. And I, I think that's very helpful because I think, you know, for us modern practitioners, because a lot of us get sometimes stuck in in a misunderstanding of the four seals or, you know, a natural struggle with it, which is, I just want to point out as natural. I think I'm, I'm sure you struggle with them. I struggle and continue to struggle with them yeah, because, you know, for some, there's this idea of lack or, you know, if we're reflecting on impermanence, there's, there's somehow some kind of like joylessness there if we're reflecting on you know dukkha is a real tough one right because you know it's asking us to look into the predicament of our human experience and you know where where something appears as happiness and when we question it in a deeper way it actually starts to appear in a different way you know it, it it we 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 don't see that necessarily anymore and this is this is tough these are challenging but i love that because i think they're again it I think what you're pointing out, and I and, and just to go back to our original premise, is lineage yeah. is a way uh, leading to our natural nature, a, a way of to to connect with our naturalness. Or, as uh, Ken Sermon was pointing out this this past week, um, our completeness. I'm really enjoying this word now in a different way. Right? We, I mean, you and I, and and some others in specific lineages, we use that in a certain way. But I think we can even use it in this context. You know. Um, like great is a kind of completeness that maha or chempo is a kind of completeness. Um, so yeah, I love that. Um, so. Okay. So here, here's a, here's a real yeah, quick. Ahead, yeah. So here's another way to define lineage, given that understanding of a sure. sense of me, that's actually becoming more full, more connected, more lovely, more Buddha nature, full, more bodhicitta, full, more compassionate and wise. So yeah. lineage is all the supportive structures that in that breaking down or breakthrough process of easing up that tight sense self of I'm only this, and it actually starts to expand and become a little more dazzling and surprising, even, even to oneself, yeah. that that, like, there's so much energy that comes with that. And there's also so many other subtle, quiet later layers of patterning of fear of hope that start to turn on and come out. And so that's a sticky, very kind of like growing pains process. And lineage is like, if we don't have supportive structures, wisdom structures that actually can help us be secured and safe and brave enough during that unwinding, during that opening process, then we can basically fragment ourselves. Mm. We can break apart. It can be too much newness, too much diversity in me, too many stories, too many options. And in that hyper-fragmentation, that can get more and more fragmented. And then basically we have extreme postmodernism. Mm. Extreme postmodernism is take every single story you've ever heard and any kind of way of doing art and any medium and put it all in a blender and mix it all up and then drink it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and basically it's making everyone sick. Yeah. 
So this is an extreme depiction, like, you know, representation of it. But I think we can say that as these different systems and different parts of the world and different worldviews, strategies, ways of making sense, ways of making love, ways of making art, music, logic, there's a lot of different ways to be human. And as they all come crashing into each other, part of the challenge of now is that crashing experience is one of overwhelm. And so basically, we intentionally, in one way, we can put on a bunch of blinders and all of a sudden try to build a lot of walls to protect ourselves from just too much. Mm. And so lineage is what helps us discern what of this fullness is actually valuable and creative and should be included and celebrated, and what of this fullness is actually just noise. Mm. It's not helpful for my process, for my like creative, beautiful expression now. At the very least, it doesn't work for me. So I'll put it to the side and discern what actually is constructive for me. Me meaning how I can actualize, like, actualize my well-being so that I can be a better service to anyone I interact with. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. I, I love to bookmark that and come back to talking a little bit about how postmodernism affects lineage and vice versa um because you're really hitting on some great points and you know one thing i was thinking as you were talking as well around lineage is is it's it's sort of like it's just like anything uh it's a container for for our pursuit of truth you know and i think you know in, in a way that creates some some safety you know it creates some context it also you know for me lineage is community that's like an, mm-hmm. a way I define it often, even though usually we say that Sangha, well, Sangha also can literally mean coming together, you know, like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. meeting could, could, could be a, uh, one definition of the Sanskrit word Sangha. But, but I think, you know, to me, lineage, Sangha is also part of lineage, but lineage is, is community. It's something that's supporting, you know, me in my exploration of the truth. It's also something, you know, briefly to, to say this, it's something to bounce like my bounce ideas off of meaning like there's feedback from lineage where I think a lot of us, when we don't have lineage, we don't have feedback. We just have this kind of feedback loop of our own egotistical self-absorbed ideas and thoughts. And we're, and we're trying to create our own truth all the while our own truth is just leading us in circles, you know? And so that's a valuable aspect of a Buddhist lineage of wisdom and compassion would be, um, it functions in in a way that any healthy, living, responsive, adaptive ecology functions. Mm. And that is every ecology has is within a larger system of ecologies that keep it in check. Yeah. So once you have a system, a sense of me or an ecology, and there's nothing that's saying, hey, you're stepping out of bounds. Hey, you're taking too many resources. Hey, you know, you can't, you can't take your things and put them in my room. Like this is my room. Like (laughs) if there's no checks and balances, that becomes a cancer. It becomes a monoperspectival, basically a colonial project. And that one very powerful ecology starts to gobble up the surrounding ones. And so what lineage always actively does when it's in a Buddhist lineage is you're always in a larger system of checks and balances. So you're always in a larger sphere of interdependence. In middle way view of Madhyamaka we talked about in this first session, there's always a larger 
set of causes, conditions, and effects that you're within and that are inside of you. So you're always made up of parts. So you have to pay attention to those parts and care for them, just like organs in a body. You have to pay attention to make sure they're healthy. And also as a person, you have to be in healthy, responsive community or in touch with your living surroundings too. If you don't get the feedback from the the surroundings around you, you might accidentally open the door to your car when you're driving on the highway and die. You have to check, hey, what's the container? What's the vehicle? You know, is this, do I need a coat outside or not? Because if it's negative 20 degrees and I just don't get that feedback from the environment, it could just be a dumb, very preventable move. So Mm -hmm. lineage really helps that happen. And specifically in terms of a teacher-student relationship in a Vajrayana context or Tibetan Buddhist context, there's always going to be a teacher and a living lineage of teachers where you're always a student. And that as a student, you always have someone who's guiding you. And the guide who is actually helping you out, helping you become your own master, helping you see things clearly for yourself, that guide is also always a student. Mm. And they're a student of a, of a teacher that they have. And that goes back all the way to the Buddha. And this is a living lineage. They call it the stainless chain of golden mountains. Mm-hmm. And it's unbroken thus far, 2,600 years. It's a living lineage system. And that's a very like special, it's a specialty of Vajrayana Buddhism in the world today. And so mm-hmm. it's in part as a Vajrayana person, at the very least, and this is a minimum, don't break the living continuity of the lineage. And that means specifically anytime someone said, put in a position where they have to show up as any kind of a representative of the Dharma, they need to really be very careful because they're responsible for a stainless, uninterrupted living lineage that has led them to this point right now. And the next person that they communicate with, they're going to be in touch with that living lineage. But if it's distorted and I am irresponsible and don't honor that living lineage connection, it can actually break. And that's just tragic. And so the, at, a, at a bare minimum, we want to not do that. Do everything, out, even if we just practice for one second a day of bodhicitta and goodness. They always say that. I mean, not to make it heavy off the bat, but Vajrayana can only be harmed from within. Yeah, I mean, the Buddha, there's a prophecy from the Buddha, the, the Dharma, Buddha Dharma will be destroyed from within, not from without. I mean, actually, you know, I think some lamas make a good point. It's, you know, it was eradicated outwardly. Buddhism was eradicated from India uh, by Mughal invaders. And so, you know, it, but it didn't kill the Dharma. It, it wasn't possible to kill it. And so, you know, from, you know, basically, it, it, you can't eradicate it outwardly, but inwardly you can dilute it so much or confuse it or miss the point and sp- and then you know it's like a game of telephone i you know lineage in a sense is a game of telephone i just i want to point that okay. out okay uh-huh. I, I think it kind of is and i think but there's also a container for how this is what we're talking about there's also a container to make sure when it's being passed there's something that it's getting worked against right it's not just like hey here's the here's the you know speaking into the telephone next person you know and then it becomes diluted there's something to like then work with from there and of course mm-hmm. as you pointed out we you know part of lineage is living teachers you know living 
practitioners who are trying to embody these things beyond just intellectual ideas, trying to transform mm -hmm. their way of being. Um, I like to get into that too, those more subtle levels of communication. But um, but yeah, there's a container for that. Where I think when there's no container, when there's no living representations in a human body of, of what it looks like to be, let's just say, a realized being, let's just say that for now, mm -hmm. um, then the game of telephone can get real weird. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no, there's no way to pass it. You know, and, and maybe that's not mm -hmm. a great analogy, but I think, I think a game of telephone can be useful if there's a container while it's happening. You know, if there's if there's checks and balances, like you said, I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, one of my teachers, Venerable Kempo Sewondonio Rinpoche, he always emphasizes that lineage, there's two types. One is the scriptural type, where you can actually read tenant systems and actually do study and contemplation of the written teachings and the oral transmission of what the Buddha said, what Guru Rinpoche said, what are the reliable commentaries, the shastras on these teachings. You yeah. learn it. But the second part is where you learn what the living lineage is by being around masters who fully absorbed the meaning of those pointing outs or those instructions. And so what, what are they like? When do they pause? How do they walk? How do they make a torma? Like when, when do they start a teaching? When do they abruptly conclude a teaching? Mm -hmm. Who, how does a line to the food counter, like how is that established? What all these are lineage, they're like living lineage. It's like the atmosphere within which wisdom dawns. Yeah. It's like the, the living local context that things happen within. It's not just some a map that we memorize and think about, but it's actually putting ourselves on the line a little bit and and having ourselves be shaped by what's happening around us. And like literally being that vulnerable to step yeah. into a space that some great teacher or some wisdom being has like designed for us to actually see more clearly ourselves. What is my mind doing now? What are my emotions doing now? What are my, what ideas am I having like right now? And a living lineage con container is kind of like a very clear mirror in that way. And then it also says like, what are the beautiful ways that I can offer that I'm just not seeing yet? And so it shows us these two things, how we're holding ourselves back and all the beautiful things that we're actually holding ourselves back from expressing more wonderfully. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, what's interesting here, I think, too, just to kind of deepen our conversation is, is you know, the script. I think of the scriptural tradition as one of those checks and balances because we yeah. can, you know, we can gain a... a you know, and we can deepen our understanding, our conceptual understanding. We can reference it against, you know, texts and commentaries that have been vetted to a certain extent. It's not just random, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, uh, what's so what's so beautiful? I think you know, as you were naming that, you know, of course, the the lineage of realization, as as you know, we normally define it. That second type mm -hmm. you were talking about. Yeah. That's usually that's usually something very internal, but it gets expressed through human behavior, you know, because we're in the human world, you know, it gets expressed through human culture, it gets expressed and, and you know, through all kinds of things uh, uh, in our human lives. And, and and that can change, that can adapt. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so, you know, to me, that that unification, that union of, of that lineage is not some static, you know, uh, how do you say it? Um, dogmatic, you know, a fixed kind of like stodgy thing. It's actually able to change in how it expresses itself. 
what it's expressing, I think, yeah. doesn't change in a way, you know, because, you know, emptiness and all these four qualities, those are changeless, you know, they're beyond change. I, I, I would, I would say, I mean, if you feel free to jump in there if you want on that point, but, but, you know, I think that's quite beautiful how, you know, when we really look at the essence here, it's like, there's a changelessness that then can express itself fluidly in different circumstances and cultures. Like we were just at this event, you know, uh, with Songster Cancer Embache and I mean, just the way things were expressed was so diverse and and full, and the communication that was happening was so rich and nuanced, and not just verbal, all kinds of stuff. And and yet, it's so unique to other ways, other you know what I would consider realized beings, you know f- how they form that environment, and they're both great. It's not like there's a competition, and yet they both have this flavor based in the scriptural tradition, and of course, Himalayan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, you know, I think of like jazz like that. Mm. You know, there's a container for the his- history of the music and and what you're doing. But jazz, the word jazz could mean like so many things. Now we say jazz music is like you could have some guy playing like super abstract, you know, ambient music. But like there's some, but he's trained in the history of jazz. There's some thread that connects it back to the tradition. Mm. So, so I think it's similar in in, in our in mm. our Himalayan Buddhist lineages. But, anyways, mm. a lot mm. there. I'd love to hear what what you if you have any of that spark something for you. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot there. It's beautiful. <clears throat> so, okay. Um, I, I guess we're sorry. I guess we're still I, on the scriptural and re, scriptural and religious being scrip, a, a scriptural uh, side, and then a, and then a lived realization side yeah so yeah the long and tokpa scripture and realization yeah those two aspects of lineage yeah so i think it's it's normal to think of the realization component to actually be interior or subjective the Mm -hmm. felt sense um and i think in part that's true but i think also i would say that it's actually just a more subtle it's all more subtle connections Mm. It's a lot of the layers that we typically glance over or that we're not yet available to be receptive to. So, and these don't have to just be internal because it doesn't just have to, of course, they say the bodhisattva levels as we're becoming more wise and more compassionate, as we're seeing more cause, condition, and effect, clearly, accurately, we go through these boomies or these levels. And that as we do that, then they say that's largely an internal stage process of development or of opening, you could say, of a re- revealing the more and more of our Buddha nature. So it's less and less clogged up. And all these miraculous things start turning on. They're usually called cities mm-hmm. or these certain extra cognitive abilities where we can see farther, hear clearer, think and remember more um, expansively with a lot more accuracy and detail. And these are just natural capacities of the mind and the heart when they're not as blocked up with our egoic self-absorbed i'm so awesome stuff um and it's not only internal because a lot of also what these boomy bodhisattvas these high level realized bodhisattvas are they're working on on levels and dimensions in ways that are just basically imperceptible to most normal everyday cognition, human beings. But every now and then we get a glimmer or a glance behind that or into Mm -hmm. that. We peek into a way of seeing, a way of being that's well beyond our normalized way. For me, it goes beyond it. There's kind of an opening. 
my Buddha nature turns on and shines out more brightly. So, for example, so when I first came to Padmasami Ling in upstate New York, I had been doing Goenka Vipassana for about three and a half years, but I hadn't looked into Tibetan Buddhism at all. And I thought when I got to this Tibetan Buddhist center, everyone was going to be wearing Burmese longi skirts, <laughs> and they weren't. The men were going to be on one side, the women were going to be on another side of the temple. No, it's all mixed. Guys were wearing shorts. I was shocked. Like, it's just, it was different. There's a different cultural setup here. And so that was shocking and kind of a little fresh and opening for me. And instead of being reactive and against it, I was like curious and like, okay, here's a different way this culture, this game, this system can be. So the next day, this is the second or first full day into being around a Tibetan Buddhist scene. First time I'm going to meet Tibetan Buddhist teachers. It's here. And it's these Tibetan Buddhist teachers. So there's an empowerment in the morning. I didn't know what that was. Everyone's walking, circumambulating, walking around the temple. Inside, I can hear these bells ringing, and there's some incense burning outside, and it's kind of dewy, misty mountain morning. Walking around the temple, and I happen to just, then people start streaming inside of the temple, the main hallway, and I happen to be at the end of the line. And as I'm going in, into this hallway, it's all these painted hallway walls, and I'm just ready. I'm just like ready for what this is, because once I do this, I can't go to longer going to 10 day courses. You basically have to go back to square one and, and start kind of accumulating your time at that tradition. Um, but I'm ready and I'm available and I came here to fully see what's going to happen. And so I walk in the hall and I'm just like totally open eyed and just ready. And I look at the mural painting in the hall and all of a sudden, just looking down the hall, the wall itself does this giant wave mm. and the whole painting, it's as if someone dropped a big stone in the wall and it was a pond and it just waved. And I was like, totally sober, <laughs> totally there. And it was just like, Oh, that's something. And then I go in, go into the room. Someone puts some yellow liquid in my hand and I drink it. It ends up being saffron water. It's very traditional, typical in Tibetan Buddhism. And we go through this big empowerment ceremony for a couple hours, mainly in Tibetan. There's some explanation in English. I didn't know almost anything, what was going on, but I was totally open for it. Okay, so the end of that beautiful summer day, we're having a picnic outside in front of the temple everyone's milling around little kids are running it's like a, almost like family it's so beautiful cloudless sky beautiful and then someone just points up at the sky says oh hey look rupachas are there everyone turns looks right directly above the center of the temple is a double rainbow yeah. directly <laughs> above the temple a double, completely round, circular rainbow straight above the center spire of the temple in a cloudless sky. And like a whole sphere circle. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, I'm like, all right, this isn't just some felt experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just a, oh, wow, I feel like some power. Like literal things in actual shared common perception are changing in ways that multiple people simultaneously see. So there's something more to this. And when certain little things like that, certain openings happening, all they do is help me, at least for me, suspend disbelief a little bit. Mm. 
maybe I don't have a full description or understanding of what is happening. And with that, a little bit of a curious open-mindedness, that's the play space of Vajrayana. And that's a play space in the middle way. And it's also the play space of Theravada to be see, to see more fully of reality yeah. and to just to not to pop that bubble of, I know what's going on. I'm so self-convinced that my story is the complete story. And it's just not. And so helpful shared outer things that happen like that are, are very valuable on the path. Not so we can be all kind of swept away in the magic of it all. And it's all, there's a lot of magic to enjoy and to celebrate and love, but it's more the magic of just not being so self-certain. Yeah. Of just being yeah. in awe. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think there's, to me, there's this, there's this whole element of, you know, you, you know, I've talked about it before of like, you know, very little of our human experience is communicated through words actually. And, and voice, you know, m much of it is not, and and as you pointed out, you know, uh, Buddhist lineage, Buddhist Buddhism lineages are there to help help us connect with uh, those other layers of communication. And then, of course, as you're describing, beyond human communication and yeah. human environment, where where actual you know reality and the way we perceive it starts to bend. And you know, this is you know, I think we're pointing out just many reasons on the power of lineage because. In that, as you as you started to say, it's not like, yeah, for me, there's not like, of course, it's nice and it's very uplifting to be like, you know, to connect with a little bit of magic, something I, I don't know the reasons for, but but it's kind of blowing my mind. Um, that's a that's a nice experience. But I think the deeper, as you're pointing out, the real deeper message, the real deeper power is that it bends our mind. It's still, you know, as you were saying, it like stops our our reification of you know mm -hmm. momentarily of like what we believe and what we think as being correct and true mm -hmm. and you know again just for some listeners who are maybe not buddhist but buddhist curious <laughs> it's not then that like i think the buddhist lineages are trying to convince you of their truth no we're just trying to open you know we're you know it's just trying to open up processes to to question truth in, in general and to start to move the mind out of this out of such a fixated rigid you know, way of being. But but the problem is, you know, myself included, uh, we don't know when, you know, when we're being rigid and fixated and, and when we're limiting ourselves and our potential, we don't know it until someone kind of points it out or something happens, so yeah, like mm -hmm. the, the double rainbow sphere you were talking about or something like that. And then, you know, for some people, it's psychedelics takes them out of that phase mm -hmm. momentarily. But unfortunately, usually the, the, the rigidity reasserts itself shortly after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, to me, we're just describing all these ways. I just want to summarize it real quick for the listeners and watchers yeah. here. You know, we're, 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 we're really describing the power of lineage. Why, you know, for you and I, this is such a beautiful and deep rabbit hole we've sort of thrown our life into, but also that we promote and that we're interested in exploring personally. But we also want to help others, you know, expose themselves to. Um, and, and I just want to be really clear, that has nothing to do with belief. It's something very different, you know? All right. It's tricky. It's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying there aren't beliefs. Yeah. I'm just saying there are beliefs in Buddhism. Yeah. But what yeah. I'm saying is that 
to me, there's a difference between a belief pointing you to the belief itself, and it ends at the belief, yeah. and a belief pointing you beyond belief. There's, there's totally there's a difference, yeah. And I think that's the power of Buddhist lineages. Yeah, they point beyond belief. Yeah. So there's fundamentalism. Yeah. It's unwilling to be questioned. Then there's questioning, which its whole thing is inquiring, skepticism, a healthy skepticism. Look, 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 parse, 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 edit, like really see it, how it's been filtered. And then the third thing is transformative contemplation. Mm. It's not just seeing the history of something. It's actually ingesting it, absorbing it, testing something, seeing like do the lab experiment. It means you have to actually make the commitment to do the experiment and show up in the turn, create a lab condition and actually do the test. And that's a commitment. That's a responsibility. And then you get a result and then you have to check the result with other people who did the same test in the same way. That's just called good science. And in the meditative approach, that's called transformative uh, path or practice that's meditative like actualization or that's how we approach that's how we use scripture as statements to test and as we test them we get a result and that result when it's confirmed and corroborated when we get more of a a clear certainty around it because we've tested it more we've compared it more we get not an absolutized rigid fixated dogmatic certainty but we get a, a certainty that like it, if we really show up for context carefully, we will see this specific type of element or result happen. Yeah. And that's just being thoroughly scientific. Buddhism just says that doesn't stop with empirical investigation. There is empirical science, there's rationality, there's very specific analytic models that if we use them well, we'll actually create better working models, better tests, we'll get better results that are actually evidenced more widely by a greater diversity of experimentation. And that's like a more full version of truth. But we never get to a fundamentalist literalist truth and then stop. Mm. It always can be pushed further and opened further to have more of its internested richness be exposed and enjoyed. But we don't endlessly just keep peeling. We actually have to do the work to absorb it into our way of being so that it's not just a question of knowing the diversity of options on the table or having a lot of stories to tell. It becomes, how can I be with you in a way that syncs up, that's really helpful and supportive for you too? So I'll tell this story. So mm -hmm. I'll listen in this way. And so that poise of mind and openness of heart, that kind of openness, that's lineage happening. That's being in the living funnel, like fount of lineage blessing. When we're so open and poised to actually be in living communication with cause, condition, and effect, including with others. And that means we're mutually responding with them in ways that are omni-beneficial. They're supported, we're supported, self and other, both relatively, temporarily with happiness, health, well-being, protection, and ultimately with enlightenment, with actual liberation from suffering and the causes of suffering. And that's lineage. Lineage will do all that in Buddhism. But it does require beliefs because we yeah. do have to at least temporarily hold a position long enough to do the experiment. Yeah. 
but we're testing the position He's to see how yeah. it's just temporary and it works in certain circumstances. But when those change, we might get a different result. You know, yeah, yeah, totally agree with you. And, you know, just to say it kind of a way I've been thinking about it lately is um, I think what's unique about let's, you know, we're talking about Buddhist lineages here or the Buddhist path is it, it, it explicitly I, I, I don't know. For me, at least, I think it's explicit. It kind of lets you know this is something you are testing. You know, this is something you're testing your perception, appearance, and habit patterns and ideas off of. You know, another way to think of that is like it's explicit that you're bouncing your ideas and human experience and self off of something else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where I think. Okay. I think there's not a lot of things that do that. You know, a lot of there's a lot of belief systems that they don't explicitly tell you that. They just say, believe this, you know, do mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's not only attractive for a lot of us, it's incredibly powerful because it's like it's teaching us how to think, it's teaching us how to be curious, how to be open from the get-go, right? Um, so that's kind of how I think of it. Cause yeah, there are beliefs like, you know, and, and some of them are, are way more challenging to come to a certainty on like karma cause and effect is a very difficult thing to, to come mm -hmm. to some certainty on, but we might not start there. We might start with some other beliefs and then, you know, we, we start to realize we have a belief. I think for so many people, there's, there's not even this acknowledgement or, or, you know, uh, how do you say it? Acknowledgement or, or, uh, understand you know awareness that there's a belief happening i think just even that something that points us to the fact that we have beliefs is actually quite important you know let alone questioning those beliefs yeah we recently heard um we're aiming to try to go beyond all theory the only people who've gone beyond all theory are enlightened beings which means in the meantime, on the path, we're going to have to use theory. Theory, beliefs, statements of fact, approximate depictions, stories. They're currently called stories. That's, and we are story-making monkeys. And we have limbic systems of reptilian brainstems. And we want to fall in love. Mm. We want to fall in love with music, with food, with places, with people. With, we want to get swept away in it. And it's totally a superpower of humans because instead of having to understand all the mechanics of a situation, the how is a song designed? How is the movie been edited? We could just suspend disbelief and let ourselves be taken away. We enjoy the magic trick. Yeah. The trick is, is to remember it's a magic trick. <laughs> yeah, that's the hard part. <laughs> and to enjoy it. And yeah. it's just a story. It's just a story. This person, this lovely experience, a lovely afternoon, a lovely time, it's so wonderful to just surrender and just, you like, literally, we relax, we become vulnerable, curious, interested, we are highlighting the good things that we see instead of all the bad things. So we let ourselves really strongly, full, more fully sync up with our local container. We get a lot of good feedback. We make ourselves vulnerable to that. And that's a falling in love process. The problem is we actually do have to learn some degree of the mechanics of the situation too. How does this work? Is this a good judgment? Like, am I being tricked? Is someone trying to sell me something? Like, so we do need to have this also 
a larger vision where we can let ourselves be vulnerable, but to do so in a really intelligent way that's actually trying to take to like check itself and check the environment and to see is everything here happening in a healthy way. So one, we can't avoid using theory and ideas and beliefs, but there's a difference in Buddhism. There's unhealthy beliefs, there's healthy beliefs, and then there's going beyond belief. Yeah. So there's negative grasping, positive grasping, non-grasping. Oftentimes it's talked about as non-virtue, that's negative grasping. Virtue is positive grasping. Wisdom is non-grasping. So the great Jamin culture Rinpoche said, the ground is the two truths, relative and absolute. Relationality in endless, inexhaustible pattern sequences that's, that are empty, they're open, they're endless. Mm-hmm. The path is merit and wisdom. That's positive grasping and non-grasping. Yeah. The result is the two kayas, the form and formless bodies. So tangible, expressive, kind of like how Buddha nature is in a more tangible way and how it is in a semi-tangible and a formless way. So uh, a rubakaya and a rubakaya, or a, a tangible kind of expression of enlightened energy and less ten of tangible expressions of enlightened energy. So the point is, the path always requires merit and wisdom, mm. relative and absolute, and good grasping. That means don't do bad stuff, do good stuff. That's good grasping. Tame the mind. That's wisdom, non-grasping. Go beyond conditioned mind and all of its belief, habit structures, and reference points. Yeah. But if we just use ideas about being referenceless yeah. and abiding in space and I'm going to fly in the Dzogchen sky and things like this, but we don't actually have lineage that's helped us fully absorb that totally spontaneous, all-inclusive, complete way of being, then we're going to actually be just aiming for a one or two stories that we have tucked inside that we don't yet see is like running the show as an operating system inside. And that blind spot is going to hijack our complete path to enlightenment at some point and probably sooner than later. And probably a lot of other people will see it way before we see it. And mm-hmm. we'll be that dude who's all non-dual, oneness, yeah. everything. But most people think we're just a jerk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's very preventable. We've seen that happen, especially amongst charismatic white guys, for about 60 or 70 years in the United States now. So from one white guy to another, <laughs> let's not let that happen to each other. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, how do you say it? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I like everything you said there. And I think there's, yeah, there's always this process of like, for me, there's this sense of like a growing, merit is also, I think, an ability to grow understanding and experience of the Dharma and expanding mm-hmm. that. And so, you know, I, I could I have this I have this idea of like high level ping pong, where it's sort of just like, then when I'm bouncing off of something in the Dharma, that's deepening as I'm bouncing off of it. But I'm also getting feedback, just as you were saying, just another way to put it. Like I'm getting feedback on like, hey, am I in, am I in line with virtue or not? You know, mm-hmm. and and the more the more mindfulness we practice, the the quicker that the quicker that feedback comes actually. 
you know, yep. we get feedback quicker. And that's a really beautiful and, and beneficial thing. So yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I hope that's clear. You know, for me, I think going beyond belief kind of takes belief first. But for me, mm-hmm. there's a big difference yeah. in sort of the the longing or the aspiration to go beyond belief. There's a big difference between like adopting beliefs or ping-ponging or bouncing off beliefs and working with them as as a process, as ways of curiosity into a path, into lineage, practicing them, meditating on them, contemplating them, et cetera, trying to understand them deeper over many years. Um, there's a big difference with like, there's still that longing to kind of taste that, that uh, the completeness of going beyond belief of that, you know, to taste that naturalness, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't have to land anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the very unique parts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of, mm-hmm. of Buddhism is it's sort of like, mm-hmm. well, we're simultaneously for longing for something we can't actually touch. Cause as you were just, you know, very, very uh, wisely pointing out, even if we talk all this non-dual stuff or sort of get into these non-dual traditions within Buddhism or, you know, without, uh, in, in another non-dual tradition, it, it all just can become concept very easily. And it's just a nice concept. It doesn't really do anything. You know, it's just a nice concept, a nice party trick, you know, a nice way to build some other kind of ego, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think this is kind of the interesting part is when there's, as you were, you were saying, I'm just sort of re- rethinking, I'm thinking it in a different way and just, sharing it in another way to, to hopefully add, hopefully not take away from our conversation. It's like, it's also really important. There's these, there's a container. There's there's beliefs that mm-hmm. we we yep. temporarily take on because they're in line with relative truth. They're in line with what's going mm-hmm. to do less harm to, you know, towards ourselves and others. Uh, they're they're mm-hmm. in line with creating less of weight, a, a weight or burden of, of karmic habitual patterns that's going mm-hmm. to cause problems for us. And I think there's, you know, but while that's happening, there's also the longing to go beyond belief. That I think is very unique. Yeah. That's something I really love about Buddha Dharma. Yeah. It's exquisite. Yeah. It's, it's very, very unique and very exquisite. So to use belief to actually dissolve the fixation of belief is wonderful. To the fact that belief we could talk about this also as view or tawa, a worldview. Worldviews have ways of orienting reality. They have gain, they have like um, operating principles, values, they have do's and don'ts. Every worldview comes with an entire landscape and world that it operates within. That's how worldviews work. Yeah. Um, you could call it like a game, the worldview of playing tennis. There's boundaries to that game. How many players? How do you win? How do you lose? How do you step out of bounds? Are you better at a backhand or a forehand? All of a sudden, there's a lot of rich qualities, metrics, um, patterns that turn on when that story, that bounded system, that ecology of tennis is agreed upon to be played. Mm. But that's a belief system. It's a worldview. And you can then dissolve that belief system and change it and play basketball. And you can dissolve it and change it and play soccer. Mm. And the nine yana, the nine vehicle system in Nyingma Tibetan Buddhism is like this. Mm. You play a smaller game that's about me and ending my suffering. And it becomes a larger game of ending your suffering and my suffering and all Mm. being suffering. And then you play a larger game of doing that with all kinds of more extensive 
subtle, skillful means using no. all kinds of variety of human experience of different capacities, intellectual ones, emotional ones, felt ones, near ones, far ones. So it's a path of skillful means. And that path, that's just a bigger game. And eventually then you go beyond that and more maha, more inclusive, more complete, where it's it's not even having to frame a system around certain conceptual beliefs. So this is a nine yana system and how it expands to include more of reality. But it's constantly going beyond itself, not by not by making fun of or throwing out of the smaller game or the smaller story ways of believing, the ways of actually loving life and grieving and like, you know, playing games, having stories, having culture. It doesn't throw them out. It honors them. And it says this, this goes deeper and further as well. If you're interested, feel free. And it keeps extending that and extending that. And the function we're trying to actually allow for is the ability to flex flow between games. Mm. It's not to get to a final game. Yeah, it's not right. to get to a final dream. Yeah. It's always going to be internested dreams. It's the ability to move between dream scenarios, depending on what's helpful for someone else. And if we temporarily adopt their dream, their belief system, their values in, in a way that actually would support them to be more courageous more fearless, more content, whatever it would be, we we support that game as if it's true. Mm. Yeah, With a larger view of it being able to dissolve into a larger game. And then we're also putting ourselves at the mercy of people who can play bigger games in more elegant ways. And we're trying to learn from these bigger, more expert people so we can become even more responsive, elegant, fluid, graceful beings, like for the benefit of others. And the point here that I didn't want to forget is mindfulness is a key factor to see mm. what is my mind doing? What is my heart doing? At the same time, it can never just be extracted from the living lineage ecology yeah. because it's part of a suite of different factors. There's right mindfulness, right livelihood, right thought right view, right speech. And all, this is an entire ecology that the Buddha taught. And if we only pull one feature of an ecology, as if we can just take it in a non-distorted way, that's definitely called an oppressive colonial move, for sure. Yeah. That's just going into a local setting, grabbing what we like, and running. And that, we all know, is not a good thing to do. And in Buddhism, it breaks lineage because it doesn't have any sets of checks and balances anymore. It's just mindfulness. Why? Because um, a sharpshooter is very mindful, but are they compassionate? Are they using their mindfulness for compassion? And so that's quite different. Mindful and caring. Yeah, mindful yeah. and compassionate. Yeah, I think this is why I wanted to kind of have this conversation of what lineage is within Tibetan Buddhism and, and, and why. Why lineage? You know, because it sets us up when we talk about why lineage, and I, and I hope this came across, you know, and in our conversation to those of you listening out there, um, it, it it has a view. It has something that we're trying to get used to. It has so, it has a name, you know, something we're longing for. We've used different language here, Drakpa and I, and and I think that I really like. Oh, by the way, I don't want to forget this. If it's okay with you to go a little longer, I'd love to use that as what you're just describing as an ecology issue as a segue into discussing briefly, you know, what are some threats. To, to you know to preserving lineage because I, I think what we've we're making the case that it's important to preserve lineage you know what lineage is why 
And then mm-hmm. the why also implicitly starts to show some importance that in order to, I mean, I hope for some of you out there, you're starting to see like, you know, our own fixation and rigidity. It, once we recognize that it's like a, it's a, it's a prison we're in and no one put us in that prison. You know, it's a prison of our own making and our own mind. And to, as you so beautifully just said, to be able to, to be able to expand, to see others needs and to play different games at higher levels and to be able to fluidly move through games, meaning life experiences, how to meet others, how to meet them at levels that actually will help them to liberate, not just feel better, not just, you know, um, how do you say it, uh, sue something temporarily, but ultimately that's a big deal. I mean, I think it's a whole paradigm shift of how we have to think, you know, I, I find this to be a case because often even the word bodhicitta and this is maybe one way to start our conversation on some of the the possible dangers in in to lineage. Um, you know, I'm I'm really concerned how the word bodhicitta is being misused. You know, in Western Buddhism and Western Dharma, because it it seems like it's it's sort of, you know, it's it's very difficult, as you know, to actually you know understand bodhicitta, let alone embody it. But we read the words, you know, and it seems like, oh, well, just be a good person, and that's bodhicitta. But that's not really what it's talking about. I mean, of course, that's included because it's a basic human value. You know, like you're saying, we take the smaller circle with us as the circle expands. So the smaller circle is just being a kind human being. It's not Buddhist or religious or spiritual at all. It's just being just being a, a kind human being as a basic value, you know? Mm-hmm. Bodhicitta is something much bigger. And, and and so I think this is some of the dangers I see, and, I'll, and yeah. then I'll just use that as a segue into some some things you're thinking of, of like, you know, the misuse of terms, the, I, I, I often call it the colonization of terms, you know, like where, you know, you pull mindfulness out of the ecology of the deeper lineages and paths, and then it becomes this thing that has no view. And bodhicitta as a term also gets pulled out, and it's this mm-hmm. thing that has no view. It's sort of, it, it gets caught up in like, you know, how do you say it? becoming a more likable person or, or having some mm-hmm. kind of effect based on doing rather than mm-hmm. being, you know? So mm-hmm. I don't know. I would love to hear your thoughts, but that's what I've been thinking about lately, the, how, how these things get misused often these days. And feel free to go wherever you want. I was just using yeah. that as a, you know, on this larger question. I think the sheer scope and power of bodhicitta like is is clear in my mind in the case of dying. So when we say we're going like experience to like kind of a longer process of dying, like the, the Buddhist teachings say that that's a at that point during that time all the ways that we've made sense of life, of our sense of self, they start to stop. We can't control what we hear. Our body feels heavy. We can't really, like, we start to not be able to move our limbs. Our mind starts to move in ways that aren't usual for ourselves. Our our vision might get dull. So the thing is, is that at this critical juncture, when all the usual ways that we know ourselves, that we've actually embedded ourselves in our story, what we see, what we think, what we hear, what we remember, all that stuff starts to get out of our control and we can do nothing about it. That's when bodhicitta, the question of is, is bodhicitta there or not? Mm. 
has Bodhicitta just been about me making a nice story? Because mm-hmm. my mind starts to get erratic and I can't even remember who I am. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember who you are. What are you doing by my bed? Why can't I move my body? <laughs> and it starts to panic because all the ways that I thought were me are actually I'm not in control of, and I'm still there watching the whole show. And at that point, if I've trained in bodhicitta, then even though this is out of my control and it's not making much sense, if my heart is open and loving and connected and courageous and bright and like deeply concerned about how are you and like uh, has a surge of kind of the, the vital connective energy of like being aware. That is bodhicitta. And it's not in a certain shape or size or form or performance. It's actually when my mind is settled and relaxed and it allows for its own natural capacities to turn on, they don't have to show up in some certain way mm-hmm. according to what yeah. I want. They're trying to actually show up with what's helpful in a situation. And yeah. I don't I don't get to control the situation. And when I'm dying, I won't get to control it. Um, and so that's like a good case of like, that shows like, well, what's the quality of wisdom and compassion am I talking about? When I can't control anything, it's not going my way. Insert your Pema children there's no, title here. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no like conscious thought going on. You know, as as the death process, we lose the ability to think critically. So you know, we're talking about another mind. You know, another mind that is open beyond any kind of conceptual basis. But but also, mm-hmm. as you're saying, is is uh, you know poised to to the needs of others and has that. You know, there's one quote that sums this up for me from Chogim Trungpa cool. Rinpoche. He says. He says, um, uh, we, we, we help because need, help, we help because help is needed, not because we want to help. Mm. And, and I think there's a big difference, you know, it shows the kind of vow of the Bodhisattva. And, and again, what is the help that's ultimately needed? It's that, you know, we have, you know, the Bodhisattva's aim is to, to wake people up from their dream. You know, of course, it's to also help to make that dream less of a nightmare while they're in a dream. But that's yeah. not the main purpose. The main purpose is to wake people up out of the dream. And that's that's the part that I think gets missed a lot of the time. That along with making the nightmare less of a nightmare, we that we also, you know, the Bodhisattva also has to create the 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 specific interdependent circumstances for that person to recognize it's a dream. That's the that's that's the most important thing. Because mm-hmm. again, it's sort of like when we really, you know, develop that compassion where help is needed, we have to plumb very deeply into understanding people, understanding ourselves, understanding mm-hmm. what suffering is, you know, hence the four seals and all of that. So I think, I think it's, it's just, I don't want to get bogged down here though, because yeah, I also do want to hear um, what you have to say about some threats to lineage oh. in the modern world. Cause I know we, yeah. you know, you had some good stuff to say about that, but anyways, sorry to, we kind of, <laughs> this is a rich topic for me, this Bodhicitta one. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really rich and it's related to a threat that's definitely around Vajrayana lineage and it's definitely related to Bodhicitta. And it has a lot to do with what's called pure relative truth. Mm-hmm. Because also part of the stories that were not yet available for or that were marginalizing, you could say, a lot of those stories are non-human-centered stories. They're non-analytic, non-logical, non-linear stories. Yeah. And 
these ways of being, of being embedded, embodied, enmeshed, extended, communicative, there's a lot of different ways to be and do and become in this whole thing called life and death, you know? And so Buddha called this very clearly, you could go to Mipar Rinpoche's teachings, on the relative level, there's impure relative truth and pure relative truth. Impure relative truth is how duality beings are basically lost in the nightmare web of their confusion. Pure relative truth is how beings who are actually abiding in the openness of their heart and mind and emptiness, they start to see in a more refined way. Their vision, their sounds, their smells, the taste, the cognition starts to be enhanced. It starts to be refined. And it's, so they start to see patterns, layers, connection, cause and condition that isn't filtered through duality, dense, nightmare lensing. Mm. It's more refined than that. And that's called pure relative truth. And this is what all the tantras assume. In addition to abiding in emptiness, the openness of mind and heart, then there's Buddha nature, which starts to turn on and become, when it's empty of, of what, of other, empty of its adventitious kind of clogging mechanisms, it starts to be fully expressive of its Buddha nature qualities. And this starts to shine on entire world systems of pure relative truth. That's called tantras. And there's six vehicles of tantras. Fifth, or sorry, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. It's outer tantras and inner tantras. And here's where we highlight something that's very much, even amongst Buddhists, even amongst Tibetan Buddhists, this is very much in jeopardy. Mm. pure relative truth. So Sarkensei Rinpoche emphasized this quite a lot, and he has before a long time. And one succinct way to talk about this is Zen is not the same as Dzogchen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The third yana vehicle of Bodhisattva yana is not the same as the ninth yana vehicle of Ati Yoga Mahasandhi. Yeah, it's not. Vehicle, we could use the other word, just path. For some path, yeah. or you could call it a worldview. Sure. The whole worldview and world space of a few meditation, conduct, and fruition. A whole internested way of making sense and being and becoming. So, the one of the significant differences between Zen, which is amazing, and Dzogchen, which is really amazing, is called pure relative truth. Mm. And in terms of middle way Madhyamaka, throwing out a bunch of terms in here, but in terms of the middle way view of poising the mind for open, responsive, kind of connective emptiness abiding, is called pure body and pure speech. That's often talked about as deity and mantra. Pure mind is called Dharmakaya mind, or it's called Zen mind, beginner's mind. No mind, the mind of the great Tao. Pure mind is very similar in Zen and Dzogchen. This is what great Mipam Rinpoche says. But the pure body and pure speech, that is a definitive difference in between sutra, tantra. And so this great karma chagme said in Union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, pure body and pure speech or deity and mantra, that is the main difference between sutra and tantra. And these things, deity and mantra, this is typically being erased from Dzogchen. Mm. And from all these tantras, and Zogsar Kensarumche mentioned this a lot, said Mahasandhi is not just, or I'm not going to repeat what he said, but it's not just be here now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are entire world systems of pure relative truth 
of worlds, of beings, of communications, of patterns, of, of histories, of interactive species. This is the Tantras and the Sutras are filled with this stuff. And oftentimes this is extracted from living lineage as if it's pre-modern superstition. Yeah. And it's thrown in the bin of indigenous pre-modern wisdom. And that has been a move that's utterly destroying the wisdom lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And that should be defended against because no Dzogchen master said, what you need to do is remove the Tantras and then you have Dzogchen. None of them say that. You can't remove the Tantras, you can't remove the Sutras. It's great completion. It includes all the Tekpa vehicle Yana systems because if you exclude any way of communicating with beings, you're not a Bodhisattva. Hmm. You're going to say, I'll help all these beings except the beings that believe in sutra. I won't help them at all, you know? That's no. it. fundamentally breaks a bodhisattva vow. Or all the non-Buddhists. Oh, I won't help them. That fundamentally breaks a bodhisattva vow. You have to help everybody with whatever's helpful, any game, any belief system, any value structure, and you have to flexibly move between the value structures because their nature is emptiness. It's naturally flexible. So this point's big, and it's definitely happening in, in the so-called Wilbarian integral communities, mm. be, largely because those lot of the people there just they're not in Vajrayana lineage. They're they're reading books yep. and they're studying it, and it's scripture only lineage. They're not in an actual living lineage container around a teacher that's keeping them in check, and actually helping them grow in certain ways that you can't read about in a book, and because of that. A lot of the pure relative truth tantras are being removed from Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhism as if that's doing a favor to the lineage. And it's not. It'll kill it. And the any authentic Vajrayana lineage master, name a name, his only Dalai Lama, his only Karmapa, his only Sakyatrisen, his only Penarubache, his only Dujarubache, his only Dujarubache, all these masters, they want to fully include Theravada, Sutras, Tantras, Dzogchen, the whole system has to be included for, for the living lineage wisdom of Vajrayana to stay intact, not just the part that they like the best. That, yeah. is, that is a sectarian approach, and they're all definitively, unanimously against those kind of sectarian approaches to Buddha Dharma. Yeah, yeah. No, I I really appreciate you pointing this out in, in this kind of way. To me, this kind of, this kind of, I mean, you're, you're specifying something, but it goes into this basket of, I think, the, the, the larger threat is, is an unwillingness to come out of our, our lens, our modern materialist, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, reasoning based lens and, and try to see that there's other ways to look at things, you know? Mm -hmm. Again, it's sort of like if we can't look at a, at something that's not ours, meaning like Buddhism, Buddhism, generally has not been held by western culture at all until you know this attempt recently mm -hmm. so I, I always feel you know i mean i've always had this approach we have to not only are we a student we're a foreigner you know we're, we're a tourist more or less mm -hmm. we're a foreigner and we have to never forget we're a foreigner and i'm not saying this some way where we diminish ourselves and oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm never going to be tibetan and all that it's not saying that you know, saying, I, I, I you know, you get it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm concerned yeah. for some watching or listening here. It's not saying that. It's saying we, we are, we are with humility. We are willing to be a foreigner and keeping our, this, this thought, I'm a foreigner to, you know, this lineage coming from a different culture, a different ecosystem, different worldview. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. that we can start to see our lenses of our own worldview and see how mm-hmm. not all of our Western lenses are bad. You know, some of them no. are, are quite helpful, mm-hmm. but some of them are harmful in this way, where if we decide to dilute, take out, you know, um, augment prematurely until we have unchanging realization. You know, once, a, once we get some Westerners, maybe they're already here, they probably already are, with unchanging realization, we're going to have some ways for, you know, scripture and realization to come through um, uh, Western culture in, in very unique ways that don't lose the essence. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do believe that we'll have we'll have some of that, but but until that's established, not just one or two or ten or thirty people or let's say even a hundreds, until that's established, we run the risk of of diluting and 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 mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. all of the all of the things you're talking about. So I, I love how you brought it to pure relative, but to me, there's there's also got to be this understanding of why that even takes place. You know, what is the mm-hmm. mechanism? You know, which mm-hmm. I just call colonialism. But like mm-hmm. I said, you know. What is specific to to modern? You know, I know it's a rabbit hole. You, you and I can continue to go in because sure. we could take like a postmodern lens and see how that also can be harmful to some of these things. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I just wanted to say that I think it would be interesting. I'd love to hear from you also on some of these more general things of lens that's unseen that you know affects how this becomes diluted and possibly dismantled in a harmful way. You know, lineage. Let's say Vajrayana mm-hmm. lineage. Yeah. Well, personally, there's two things that are very low-hanging fruit that don't require any belief in anything magical or mystical. And one is current cognitive science. There is there is much more than um, a type of knowledge, or you could just call it, it's called 4E cognitive science. And it's... N- Analytic thinking or IQ is no longer the only value of into the intelligence. There's also participatory knowledge, procedural knowledge, perspectival knowledge, in addition to po- propositional knowledge, logic. This is proven very strongly in cognitive science currently. So you have to be able to take multiple perspectives, learn skill sets, have have participatory knowledge where it's shaped by the living local context. It's not just something you put onto it. These are proven, empirically, rationally, Eurocentrically proven ways that the human brain-mind structure functions embedded according to the current science. It's not just a thinking machine. We're not just thoughts. So that's one. That means we have to go beyond mere empiricism and rationality because that's what current science says that that's how we function. Two, in addition to that, like strictly empirical, rational thing, then we know it's postmodernism. We have feelings, we have stories, we have all these culturally encoded biases. And biases can be good and biases can be super destructive. Healthy biases help us sort an infinite set of data in a visual mm-hmm. field in a minute. It helps bottleneck it into the most relevant stuff happening, like a tiger is jumping at me now. Like, I don't process a thousand bits of data to see what the tiger's body movement is. I recognize tiger, danger, run. Yeah. Like, that is a way of chunking of this called relevance realization in cognitive science and our body and mind structure does do that and it chunks in this way it takes a giant pretty much inexhaustible amount of data and it cognitively selects for the things that are most relevant right now and that's a healthy bias if we didn't do that we could never do anything 
And so this way of functioning, these are like basically um, additional ways that are not traditionally thought of as IQ intelligence. Mm -hmm. They're how do we sort, how do we move through different types, different ways of, of problem solving to become a general problem solver. This is actually relevant to AI. They say, this is the thing that if, if artificial intelligence can actually learn, can, if they can train it or it can train itself to do general problem solving, then it will become, there'll be no, there'll be no reasonable person who can say it's not sentient. Hmm. Because if it can see, if it can read poetry and look at a stoplight and give advice to a kid and also tell you what's inside of a, a recipe, if it can just seamlessly move between problem sets, the way humans typically do, that's called general intelligence. It's multi-strategy problem solving, like naturally, easily. And so this is the second point. Artificial intelligence is about to hand humans their lunch because the just on the IQ line in that chat GPT-3 by OpenAI company, it went from having 130 IQ to 150 IQ in three months. That means it's now it's currently in the top win percentile of passing any different exam that you can give it a law exam. I mean, any IQ exam, it's the top 1% now, all above all the other humans who've taken years of study. It did that in three months. So it's currently on the way to be about 180 IQ. Einstein's IQ was 160. So what this means is Everyday humans like me and the super genius IQ humans like Einstein are about to not understand the IQ of ChatGPT 4 or 5. Mm -hmm. And so we're about to be like at the limit of our empirical rationality. It's about to be having to teach us how to do stuff. Mm. All right. Literally, like it might have already happened and it doesn't have to even be sentient to do that. It just means humans are about to become not the top of the food chain anymore mm. in terms, at least in terms of IQ. It's about to know how to process things in ways that we cannot even yet imagine. And it's not because it's a fish or a turtle and it's that dumb. It's because we're that dumb. Mm. And we can't understand the imaginative ways that it's functioning yet. That's why the best chess players, the best human chess players, are studying the AIs to teach them how to do better chess. So that puts us in a really humble position as humans, currently, specifically related to these really subtle currents of cause, condition, and effect. It doesn't yet have to be pure relative truth, but it should definitely give really intelligent academic humans, like ones that go to Oxford and, you know, talk about the secularization of Buddhism as if they're doing it a big favor. It's yeah. about to show those specific people that they need to get a lot more humble a lot more quickly. Because oh, so you, this, you have a this thing, AI is about to beat every single human and every different IQ challenge that we can imagine. And so humans you, won't understand how it's happening. We'll only know that it did it. It won. Yeah. So, so, so you, you're actually, you know, thinking or reasoning like a, like a positive use case of AI in that sense, where it's sort of like, you know, it's going to yeah. educate us. I, I actually have that kind of optimism too, you know, because 
I, I think, yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, I mean, there's some some huge dangers. We're not going to get to that in this conversation, but let's well, just the say dangers, that, the know. demons are the use the dangers of the humans using the AI. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the but, danger. But yeah. yeah, because yeah, but um, but I think you know, it, there's that movie. Um, what's that movie? It, it was kind of a commentary exactly on this. The one where uh, her with with her. Joaquin Phoenix, you know, mm-hmm. and Scarlett right. Johansson. Yeah, yeah, where like at some point the a, the AIs got so so much intelligence they were just like bye like we're going somewhere <laughs> it's like like where are you going we, we we can't explain this to you like you won't understand it basically you know and just it, like the, just like boomy bodhisattvas have to do with us yeah, exactly yeah like just like guru Mache had to do with yeshi sojo yeshi sojo is an enlightened being but at a certain point yeshi sojo is like will you show me just a little bit of the sambhogakaya realms Mm. Pure relative truth realms. How do these high boomy bodhisattvas experience worlds? And Gurumiji said, "No, you're not ready." Mm. And she said, "Oh, great, great master. Well, like, will you please just show me?" And he said, "Okay, fine, just a tiny bit." And he like snapped his fingers, and he let her her own cognitive intelligence open to see like the vast vistas of Samboka Gaya vision, and she instantly fainted. Yeah. <laughs> Because it was so imaginatively, imaginatively explosive and powerful. And this is what happens every time we die. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, all exactly. of our habits of ways of like making reality digestible to me, because I want the kids menu, all that stuff, it shuts off. And the full spectrum power of reality beams straight into my mind. And if my mind can't handle that amount of power without trying to collapse it into a reference box, it faints. Mm. And that's called, that's what we do every time we go to sleep. And it's Mm. what we do at these different things. So what we're training in to actually be in a mind poised for insight is to be so readily attentive that even if the box moves, even if the patterns shift, even if things get very weird and very liminal and very imaginative, we stay bright and attentive and discerning. And we don't just pass out or fight. Mm, yeah. And that's that's the training process of meditation in general. And when we can do that more widely, more stably, we'll start to see some patterns that we overlooked. We'll start to see some of the amazing, extraordinary glow of of like pure relative truth of how some bogakaya be, be, like beings are how bodhisattvas function when they're realized of how the human cognitive ability is when it's not boxed through a tiny little empirical box of thoughts or of my story mm. but it that's when it gets not into ideas which is modernism basically hyper ideas or only my story that's hyper extreme postmodernism but mm-hmm. post postmodern or middle way or integral starts to be whatever games being played i'm okay i'm willing to learn mm. and that's called integral or middle way view and once we start to be really curious and willing to learn and those different types of pattern systems and civilizations of worlds and beings and communication styles start to really be allowed by our minds that's when we start seeing pure relative truth and the relevance of the tantras. And that's when we start taking as a belief. That's when we start believing in the tantras because we'll start to have confidence that they're more accurate than the current diluted mode of, of view that I'm holding. So we'll temporarily hold a better belief that we haven't yet earned 
because we'll have we'll be on a trajectory that the Buddha told me the foundational Buddhism that turned out to be true. And then he told me Bodhisattva Yana that turned out to be true. Then he told me Shentong the Buddha nature that turned out to be true. Okay, is there a galaxy world system eighteen million light years away where all these beings have lifespans of ten thousand years and they constantly just have food fights of generosity to like serve each other and love? Maybe. And we start to entertain that as a belief and not so that I can then define my whole life based on this one dogmatic belief, but I allow myself to, it's a what if state of mind. They call it hypo, it's like hypothetical deductive. I, I allow myself to be in a what if play space. And then all of a sudden these creative capacities start to have room to gel in new ways. And that's what the tantras do. That's what the skillful means allow for. And that's when Mahasandhi or Ati Yoga has a full range of game playing to serve beings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, very complete the way you put it. And, you know, I don't have much to add, but just to sort of maybe cap our conversation, I would say, and that's when we are free. You know, because I don't know about you, as just a normal human being, I need some incentive, you know? And so, so maybe some of our listeners need some incentive too. You know, that's when, that's when we are free and 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 complete when we know that completeness and we are that completeness and 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 i think what you're pointing out which is so helpful is that completeness is not nothingness you know that completeness oh. also comes with with a t- with an experience right we're we're calling pure relative here in our conversation and we can taste it in every moment like yeah. any moment you're with someone and they genuinely feel seen and you generally care, you gen- genuinely, like authentically care about them. That is a moment of true nature. Mm. That's a moment of bodhicitta. It's a moment of wisdom and compassion, like fully on in that context between those minds. And that, that is like, that is freedom. And then the freedom becomes more full. You share that with two people. You share that in a different context. You share that when you're tired. You share that when you have an empty bank account. You share that when you have a full bank account. Like, like, and that connective power, like that interdependence where it's like full on heart to heart, like really all cylinders on, like all the different embodied ways of being a human, of being, being, of being like your Buddha nature, like of being a Buddha. When that's on, that's a moment of freedom and it can be simple. So simple, you can just be by yourself sitting, doing nothing, and just being in love with the world. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Well, my friend, I think it's a really beautiful, you know, note to to close our conversation on. I, I do want to ask you though, if there's anything just we missed that you that you'd like to close with. But you know, I, I really feel you. <laughs> that that really, you know, uh, what do you say? That drop the mic. Yeah. But if, but if you you want to pick the mic up again, you're welcome to. <laughs> well, I love you, brother. I love you too, man. <laughs> and I like I appreciate the work you're doing. And I also just appreciate the work of there's so many wonderful beings in the world. And each of us are are those beings. And when we when we let our hearts like really settle into themselves and we just stop and show up for a moment with someone else and with ourselves too, and just like enjoy, like enjoy the I am me and you are you. And we're breathing and doing this wild thing together. And it's totally mysterious. <laughs> no one controls it. <laughs> and like, and we're doing our best. And then we try to do our best even better. Yeah. And like, 
that's just that is the buddhist path yeah yeah and i I mean yeah and we have i mean you and i and you know i i never try to proselytize or or you know make someone buddhist but i i I do feel really thankful for these lineages you and i i mean you and i share a lineage and you know the same lineage and i just feel so thankful for meeting this it's like a I don't know. This is where I feel like a lot of us are really lost. And if yeah. we're willing to open our heart and, you know, maybe adopt some temporary beliefs, but again, with this longing to to really find freedom, mm-hmm. which isn't belief, um, but we might need some temporary beliefs. I think it's just so vital. I think, you know, the, the, I think you and I are both very passionate for the preservation of Dharma in the world, uh, more specifically Vajrayana lineage. And, and it's, um, yeah. It's just so amazing. I, every day I feel so more and more appreciative of that. Yeah. 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 It's extraordinary. And find if, if you're not a Buddhist, just recognize one really valuable thing you have in yourself. Yeah. And hopefully if you're fortunate, find one other person, one other being who can enjoy that with you. And then look for something valuable in them and like share that together. And like, that's the beginning of community. That's the beginning of Sangha. And that's beginning of like, that is definitely the step to making this world a better place in that small little area, which is the relationship between you and that person, or even me and myself. That is like how this goodness comes out. It's how we change the world. It's never been different than that. And like, you don't need to be a Buddhist to do that, but you do have to care. You have to care about yourself. And you have to see the value in others. Like, even if it's just a sparkle, that's enough. That's that's all you need to, like, start and, like, really have your heart turn on and have your wisdom start shining. And it's beautiful. I really s- supplicate everyone to do that. And I'm very thankful for the great beings that have done that. And they constantly do that all the time. Like, and may their lives be very long, very healthy. May their wisdom activities of compassion and love and bodhicitta be endless for the benefit of every single being. And I really dedicate the merit, the virtue for that to happen like right now. Yeah, beautiful. Well, well, Lama Drakpa, it's been a joy to have you on for, you know, now a part two, uh, a little deeper into lineage. And um, yeah, I would love to do this again. So, so lots of love, my friend. I really, really enjoy this. Just thank you for coming on and sharing your, your beautiful wisdom.